from Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW. This is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Podvocate. I'm your host, Andy Vandenbush. You may remember in January, I did an interview with compliance professional Ryan Stillian. In that discussion, we focused a lot of our time seeing how the work in a healthcare compliance program overlaps or works in tandem with skills learned in law school and by practicing lawyers. I'm going to be very honest. Healthcare compliance is still on my mind, but I feel that it's important to maybe take a step back and discuss what this branch of compliance actually is. To do this, let's start with a bit of context. Compliance departments, very generally, often act as an intermediary between working practitioners of virtually every profession and the rules, laws, and regulations that guide ethical and business decision-making. In part, this was reason for the creation of the Inspector General Act of 1978. In that act, inspectors' general positions for a handful of departments were created in an effort to audit, monitor, and advise on operations to prevent acts of fraud, waste, or abuse. More specifically, we're going to continue to run alongside healthcare compliance. As you might expect, the OIG for the Department of Health and Human Services acts as an investigator, auditor, guide, educator, and overseer on operations that are regulated by HHS. Part of their guidance comes in the form of compliance tips known as the seven elements of an effective compliance program. If you do a quick search on the internet, it will likely be the first thing that pops up. These seven elements act as the skeletal structure for healthcare compliance programs, whether they be in small private practices or large multi-state healthcare enterprises. Today, I sit down with Vanessa Ross, a compliance professional based in Knoxville, and we discuss and break down the meaning of the seven elements and how they show up in her work each day. I am here with Vanessa Ross. Vanessa, thank you for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. We are going to talk about our favorite thing, which is compliance. Before we even jump into that, the one thing that I do want to ask you is, why don't you just introduce yourself? Tell me a little bit about your background, who you are. All right. Thank you so much, Andy, for having me on. As you stated, my name is Vanessa Ross. Uh, Currently, I am a regional compliance manager for one of the largest healthcare organizations in the United States. So just to talk a little bit about, you know, who I am and what I do, uh, my academic background. Originally, I majored in political science pre-law and I later changed my major to criminal justice. I earned an associate's degree in criminal justice then went on to earn a bachelor's in legal studies. I then went on to complete my graduate studies at Seattle University School of Law, earning a Juris Master's of Legal Studies in both compliance and risk management. So just to give a little bit more about my background, professionally, I did not start off working in compliance. 
in the compliance room per se. I started off working in the healthcare insurance field, originally in customer service, where I worked my way up to the quality assurance and training team. Quality assurance, depending on an organization, may vary. In the organization I worked for at the time, the duties included ensuring staff was trained and followed all of the organization processing procedures, performing root cause analysis on processing procedures to determine how to improve processes, whether it was to improve efficiency or proficiency. We went and looked at those policies and procedures and looked at how we could improve them. Uh, some duties could be listening to customer service calls to ensure that the call center staff was adhering to HIPAA guidelines and ensuring that they were following internal policy. Uh, it could range from reviewing applications to make sure that the enrollment counselors or agents were signing up actual members who were eligible for a Medicare Advantage plan. Uh, pretty much just anything relating to the process and procedures from an internal perspective, as well as some of the outside external uh, as well. So one of the other big duties that I had was ensuring that the organization was in guideline with the federal laws and Medicare guidelines when it came to TTY capabilities and LEP capabilities for uh, the organization members. So that's just a little bit of some of the things that I've done. I was also the interim training and compliance manager uh, for quite some time, but my experience is primarily in the Medicare and Medicaid uh, arenas. Later on in my career, I did move into the legal realm where I was involved more so in privacy related items such as data sharing agreements, business associate agreements, uh, pretty much this pertained to obtaining eligibility files from healthcare organizations. So third party liability services could be performed. So it was very important for me to know each state statute pertaining to third party liability. So I was able to educate those payers uh, to ensure compliance with them providing their eligibility data. So that's just a bit about who I am and what I've done in my past. And again, as I mentioned before, earlier on that I am currently a compliance manager for one of the largest healthcare organizations in, in the United States. That's a nice background. You've got uh, you've got a lot of experience. Um, okay. I really love particularly that you have a healthy background in risk because I don't think that we think about things like root cause analysis and what are the triggers that could make things really bad in the future. But when we think about compliance, because we think, well, if you just follow, there's not going to be a problem to begin with. So that's really interesting. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, I guess my next question is you, you have a lot of experience in federal payers and a lot of like health insurance and things like that. What brought you specifically to work in compliance? I always knew that I wanted to do something within the legal, legal realm. When I first started my professional journey, and this was such a while ago, um, compliance was not widely known um, within organizations. So to say, there was not necessarily a compliance department. We know compliance was not this widely accepted until after the Enron scandal. Um, but when I first started, there was no such thing as compliance. I knew growing up that I wanted to do something within the legal realm. Of course, there were some personal things that got in the way of me actually 
you know, getting a Juris Doctorate. So I got the Juris Masters. I didn't know where I would land, but I knew I wanted to do something that dealt with the, the regulation and law and how to apply the law and creating process and procedures. So that's ultimately what landed me in the compliance realm. I always had a a knack for the what's, the when's, the why's, the where's, that type of thing, just the way that my mind works. I hear you say that's the way my mind works. I feel that on a, on a spiritual level. <laughs> I think I feel the same way. So moving into that, you know, we're talking about regulations. We're talking about legal, I, I would almost say legal adjacent ideas. So like if we're talking about healthcare compliance, like specifically healthcare compliance, because when we think about compliance, you know, it's it's kind of an umbrella term. And I think it really does mean different things to different people. But like, if we're specifically talking about healthcare and like the HHS OIG, what is your definition of healthcare compliance? Great question. Um, because I always look at compliance in general, although my experience is mainly pretty much just healthcare compliance. I look at it from my perspective of standards, actions, and doing what's right, even when no one is looking. You know, that's very important, of course, with healthcare compliance. It's important no matter what organization, of course, but specifically dealing with healthcare compliance because we know the impact that non-compliance can have on an individual, not only just the, on the organization, but you affect others, their lives, so to say. If you're violating their privacy or something that's accidentally you know, done, it could be detrimental to that person. So to me, it's pretty much in a nutshell, it's the same as looking at compliance and other realms. It's standards, it's actions, it's doing what's right, even when no one is looking and making sure that it's consistent. That's how I look at compliance. That's what I define it as. And the way that I use this within my current role, it's pretty much something that's natural because it's a must. Because in the role that I'm in, I am in now, you can kind of sort of become the one-all be-all in certain circumstances. So I try to make sure that, that there's a, a standard. If there's not a standard, I utilize my resources and I take action to ensure that those standards are followed. Uh, I also, it could come a time to where you may be thinking in, in your mind, well, hey, you know, no one's going to know if it's not done, but it, you, you can't do that. You always have to have the back in the back of your mind to do what is right, even when no one is looking, even though you know that it, no one may not even know something was not done. You still fall in alignment with that, because to me, you know, integrity is everything. When we're thinking about compliance, it's really that idea of doing the right thing, even when someone isn't breathing down your neck. And I just kept right. Integrity, integrity, integrity. And then you finally said it. And I was like, yes, yes, integrity. That's exactly it. And I appreciate that you brought up how it shows up in your work right now, that even if there isn't necessarily something thoroughly defined on the books, there's still all of this contextual information that kind of helps us figure out and understand what is what is the right thing you should be doing based on how you're supposed to be doing everything else. And I think that makes it so intersectional. It makes it so complicated. <laughs> that's why I think that's why it's so it's got so many different definitions. Yes. Um, and I agree with you on that. Definitely. So now we get into the fun part. Like I was saying before, is that we're going to break down the HHS OIG. They have posted 
kind of everywhere, their healthcare compliance program tips. And within those tips, they have, I, I would almost say like the commandments of working in healthcare compliance, but they're the seven elements of what makes an effective compliance program. And I think the one thing, and I mean, I know, I know you know this, I think we're saying this kind of generally for people who don't have a ton of experience in compliance is, is this idea that this section of the OIG is just related to healthcare. So yes, these seven elements could probably work in the corporate world somewhere else, but they're really usually focusing this on healthcare and healthcare compliance. They're, they're pretty standard and they, they, they show up everywhere. And, and like you were saying, pave the way for us to, to act with integrity and to, to work with integrity. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through each of the seven elements. And then I've got a couple of questions attached to that and having like an informal conversation about, you know, what do these things mean? Why is it important? So are you down for that? Absolutely. So uh, the first one that we have here is implementing written policies, procedures, and standards of conduct. So this seems, this one's pretty self-explanatory, obviously, but I do have a couple of questions about kind of the work that you do when we're talking about things like policies and procedures. I feel like we use those terms interchangeably, but I feel like they're also kind of their own thing. Um, and so I guess my question to you is, what is the difference between a policy and a procedure? Why is it so important for them to work together? That's a great question. So I'm trying to find the words to, you know, put in place for that. Uh, first, I want to start off by saying for those who may be new to compliance, you know, implementing written process procedures and the standards of conduct is vital to any organization. And I want to say this really quickly because I want to make sure for someone who's listening who may not have that compliance experience, the what's, the when's, the why's and how's, because again, if you're analytical, you want to know why is it important? Uh, it is important because you know, in order for staff to know what to do, the organization must provide a guide or a, a roadmap, if you will. Uh, you know, sure, some of the information that's encompassed in written policies and procedures could be perceived as common sense, but we all know common sense may not be common. I'm just kidding. Right. No, but, no, you're right. You know, we cannot expect for employees and staff to automatically know what's right or what's wrong. Sure, we can expect that they should know how to conduct themselves, but it's an organization's responsibility to ensure that we have written process procedures and standards of conduct, leaving no gray areas or room for misinterpretation. So, you know, we all know that compliance related information and regulations can be complicated and difficult to understand. So when you're composing these policies and standards, it must be clear, concise and also creative because you don't want to create a process or a procedure that, yes, you have it on paper, but it's not easily to comprehend. So or it may be, you know, perceived as being boring or stale. They could be deemed useless at that point because the staff is unlikely to retain that information or they'll look at it as something like, oh, man, here we go with these policies and procedures. Oh, I have to look at this. They're not going to necessarily want to do it. So I just want to make that clear. That's the importance of having, um, you know, the written policies and procedures and standards of conduct. To me, this is not a you know, one all be all answer. To me, the difference between the written policies and procedures and standards, again, it's going to vary depending on your organization. For me, I would say the policies are pretty much 
this is what we need to do on a day-to-day basis, depending on the scenario. Just say, for instance, we need to know what a policy is when someone receives gets a subpoena. How do we respond to that subpoena? Well, the policy states that this is what you need to do, if that makes sense. That does make sense. Um, when it comes to the procedure procedure part, and, and I apologize because, again, like many, policies and procedures can be used interchangeably uh, depending on the organization. Procedures, to me, not only address, it's adjacent to policies, pretty much like a continuum. And again, that's not a one-all fits all, you know, answer. And it may not, to me, a procedure is pretty much a continuum of a policy, but it's more in depth. I did want to make a mention about when we're drafting policies and procedures, it's really important to be creative because, you know, we think about compliance as like this really boring, stuffy thing. Because it's so boring and stuffy, we don't give it, I think, sometimes the the seriousness that it deserves. And so I really like that idea of like flexing the creative muscle to get people to follow it and or to, to remember it. And so I really, I really appreciated that. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. And to your point, because a lot of times, you know, the organization may look at, oh, we just have to have this written policy. We have to have this uh, written standard. But at the same time, it's just like, OK, what are you doing to ensure that this information can be retained? Right. What is it that will grasp the attention of the person that has to follow these policies? So I think it's very important that we play you know, pay close attention to not only we have to, but look at we're going to and we're going to do it in a way that benefits the organization as well as the staff because it benefits the staff because they're able to retain it. So mm-hmm. um, definitely. So moving on to the second element, we've got designating a compliance officer and a compliance committee. So what exactly does that mean to you and what does that look like in practice? To me, you know, there must be a compliance officer and a compliance team, depending on the structure of your organization. Those terms may vary, but you may just have your loan compliance officer. I've seen organizations that didn't necessarily have, but, you know, a compliance officer and maybe a compliance analyst. And and that's it. That's all. Um, But to me, there must be a, a compliance officer. There must be a compliance team or a compliance committee. Um, because it's vital because who's going to be able to do these compliance functions like manage the policy and procedures, monitor compliance, investigate violation. If there's not a compliance team or committee or officer, where are those functions going to? Who's handling those functions? We all know that when it comes to a compliance committee or a compliance officer or compliance team, they should be able to operate with autonomy. I think a lot of times in organizations, you have your compliance committee, you have your compliance officer, but they're still limited in the capacity on how they can act because they still are influenced by other factors that they should not be because they don't have that autonomy that they need. So designating a compliance officer and a compliance committee is going to be vital to any organization because you're going to need someone who can act without bias and be able to manage uh, the compliance compliance functions, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, I almost want to tap into your experience with like understanding risk and just, you know, mm-hmm. When you don't have a competent 
compliance program in place, which would include a compliance officer or at least some tor- some type of, of compliance team, the risk goes way up because you've got so many people and so many stakeholders and so many goals that's all swirling around. It's like a storm. Moving on to number three, we've got conducting effective training and education. So why is training important? That's a great question. And I just want to say love training, love education. And probably the way that I'm going to answer this question is going to lead to what you're going to ask next, possibly. But I will say that training and education is everything. It is absolutely vital um, to a compliance program because it's like, okay, you have all of these policies, these procedures, these standards, but if they're not trained on them or they haven't received the appropriate education, what is the point of all of this? When providing compliance education and training, I feel sometimes that organizations get caught up and I'm going to put quotation marks. We must provide training versus caring about if the training or education is effective or not. Training and education can be provided time after time, but if the training that is being conducted is not effective, it's all for nothing. You must look at it from the perspective of, is this training being retained? Can the, can the training that's being provided be applied by the individual who took the training? You know, also often when an organization focuses heavily on the we must provide training, it can lead to employees receiving training that is not even relevant to their job function. I've been in situations to where it's like individuals are receiving training and it's just like, okay, this specific compliance training doesn't even apply to this function. So compliance training can vary depending on the individual, you know, role. The last thing an organization would want to do is to have employees sit through trainings that are not relevant as it's a waste of time and resources. And it can also cause the employee to feel as though that the compliance training is not important because they may feel like, well, hey, it doesn't apply to my role anyway. I'm just going to have to sit through it because yearly I have to do it. (laughs) So, you know, I've learned this throughout my career early on. I can remember uh, in a organization that I worked for, we were providing training after training. And we and the leadership was wondering, you know, why isn't this training effective? We've conducted this training twice this year. Why were there still a a high number of HIPAA violations and violations of company policy? You know, they were looking at it. Well, is this a will or skill issue or did the organization drop the ball? In my opinion, you know, I said, well, I feel as though that the organization has dropped the ball. So the organization had to change the approach to how and what trainings were being provided. By doing this, we were able to tailor the training to meet the organization and the individual needs. So, you know, we did this by looking at the reasons for certain violations and, uh, you know, looked at specific scenarios and see if they were consistent across the board, which led to, let's just say, you know, improvement in HIPAA violations. It helped, you know, improve the quality of customer service calls. So pretty much what I did, because I was pretty much in charge of this initiative, I went back, I I pulled a certain number of calls, I looked at a number uh, of scenarios that transpired, I looked at the training numbers across the board, and I also went back and re-evaluated the training materials relating to what uh, you know, the staff was failing for. So we're gonna just say HIPAA, for instance. I went back and looked at that training and I noticed that there was a discrepancy in the HIPAA training. So thus, that's what led to us continuing to have this failure across the board because the training was not up to par. There were errors within that training. 
So I just want to say that it's very important. Yes, you can have training all day long. If the training is not relevant, if the training is not clear, concise, and it's not relevant to each individual person's job function, it's not going to matter. You definitely read my mind. My follow-up question was going to be, how do we make training effective? And you, you hit it. You did it. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you for being on my wavelength. I think that's the struggle. I mean, even when you've got huge, I, I think if anything, it becomes more of a struggle when you've got the larger the organization, because they're just worried about, let's get this out. Yep. But like, what are you going to do when you have this training and people literally just click, 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 click through it. Right. And, and it's, it's not being retained. And then, you know, something happens and you come up and you say, but you were trained in this and they go, well, yeah, but right, exactly. It yeah, because yeah, they're not able to apply it. They're not able to apply what they learned because they never even retained any of the information. They literally just sat through the training, as you said, click, 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 sign attestation, end of story. So mm -hmm. I just think, um, you know, going forward, you know, organizations need to pay close attention to. Yes, you do have to provide the training, but this shouldn't be considered a chore. This should be something that you are very mindful about. And I even at the time that I was over the particular you know, training program in the organization that I was with, I also took polls from staff so I can get a clear understanding on what they felt needed improvement uh, within the training. So you, you want to make sure you involve those who have to take the training as well when you're creating these um you know trainings and i also feel like too when it comes to training we, we need to be very careful because we don't want it to always just be a uh, once a year yes it may only be mandated based off whatever organization whether you're a medicare advantage because depending on the organization you may require um some sort of training you know once or twice a year but i think the organization staff should not hear about compliance training once a year when it's time to do it. It should be something leading up to it, you know, before it's time for training. You know, during my tenure, what I would do were, were like trivia questions, just fun little things like, well, hey, today is, uh, you know, Quality Monday. We have a trivia question. What was, you know, what happened in 1999 with HIPAA? You know, just throwing out, you yeah. know, you know, questions. But again, you know, depending on the organization, you may want to be a little bit more interactive. So when it does come down to where it's time for training, the staff is excited. I'm not saying they're going to jump through hoops and, hey, yay, training time, but it's going to make them feel like they want to do it. And when someone feels like they want to do something, they're going to do it with meaning. Right. I mean, I, I even think about like how interesting would that be to just throw out, here's a question, here's, here's a question that you should know from your training because they do that with um they do that with like phishing all the time you know like you get mm -hmm. that fake email <laughs> you better not open that link but um that would that would be that's a, that's a really good idea to use um right and even get them like a certificate you know i was a little corny so at first i'm just like well you know when i presented the thing you know the initiatives that i wanted to do to leadership they were just like oh it sounds good but is it going to be a little corny to the staff right. but once we started doing it and we we'll send them a certificate afterwards it became something that was a big deal to where people like hey are we going to do quality corner are we going to be able to get more trivia i mean it's easier when you're in person but of course too it could be a virtual thing you can send them their virtual certificate it could be that um, you know the organization may be able to give them 
you know, whatever your organization does for incentive. It may be that they have a, a organization store to where maybe they can, you know, earn five bucks or something like that if they got a compliance question right, uh, because now you're given incentive, which again, that will make someone really want to be involved and it creates and builds that culture of compliance. Yeah, and it, it makes it effective. Yep. So moving on to the next one, number four. This one feels like it should be like a no-brainer, but mm -hmm. it's it's so vastly important. I feel like it needs to be talked about a little bit. Developing effective lines of communication. What is that? What does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah, um, you know, communication, you know, just like the other elements, is going to be very, very vital. It is key, um, you know, to an effective compliance program. Not even just looking at it, the, at it from the perspective of, well, hey, they have to have a line to be able to call in for whistleblowers or, hey, they have to be able to you know, send an email, you want to be able to build that rapport with your staff and you want to be able to do it in a way to where it's reachable to everybody. You know, it may be some people prefer not to talk on, you know, the, on the hotline. Some people may prefer not to send anything in right. So they will want to go ahead and use the hotline. I think having that effective communication, again, that's going to vary depending on your organization, the size, uh, the funding, things of that nature. I also want to look at it from the perspective of you want to communicate with your employees, not just having them a hotline that they can call or uh, an email that they can report to. You want to be able to have an open door policy, meaning that, hey, like now in the job that I'm in now, Someone can reach out to me in email and say, hey, Vanessa, you know, I have a concern. Can I give you a call? They can, you know, send me an email. Hey, this incident occurred. You know, they have multiple ways of reaching me and they know that I'm going to respond to it. But I also don't want them to feel like the only time that they can communicate with me is if they have an issue. You want to also have the communication should be both ways. Yes, you want them to communicate to you to report compliance concerns or issues, but you also should, I feel like in organizations, especially big ones, because oftentimes people feel just like they're a number, like, oh, it doesn't matter if, you know, I feel this way about compliance, this company's so big, they're not going to listen to me. I, you, you should have it to a point to where, you know, your compliance team, again, just like I was mentioning with the, the trainings, you, you don't want to just reach out, you know, to your staff or employees when it's time for training. It's pretty much wanting to have that both ways. You're reaching out to your, your regions. Hey, you know, this is Vanessa, your compliance manager for the East region. Just want to let you guys know these are some of the initiatives that compliance is working on. Uh, just wanted to know if you all needed anything. Is there anything that I can do to make things clearer for you? That type of thing. But if you do not have com communication, the relationship uh, between you and your staff is not going to work because they're going to feel like they can't trust you. They can't trust the organization. Uh, and it's just going to lead to serious issues down the line. Again, it, it, it's that idea of like, if you don't do it, the risk just jumps up. Because if you Absolutely. don't have communication, then, you know, there's, there's a higher risk to say, well, I'm just going to do it this way because this is how we've always done it. And then yeah. something happens. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think on the flip side, you know, having that, that open communication of like, 
yes, the, the communication should be free and it should be both ways. But I think that's also why anonymity, the option of anonymity can be so important because then, you know, you have someone that is recognizing, oh God, something's happening that they know that they can go in freely and not um, Mm -hmm. be retaliated against or or anything like that. Um, And that, that almost like leads so nicely into number five, which is conducting internal monitoring and auditing. So I guess before, before anything, what is monitoring and auditing? What does that look like? Why is it important? That's a great question as well. You know, going back to my past functions, as I stated before, uh, you know, root cause analysis, you know, reviewing the process and procedures uh, to identify were there any gaps? Is there any room for improvement? Um, You know, conducting these internal audits and monitoring, it helps the organization gauge the effectiveness of the controls or the effectiveness of their compliance program. You know, failure to have internal monitoring and auditing in place can lead to major issues. Because think about it, how else would an organization find risk or mitigate risk or resolve risk or other issues if they are not even aware that they exist in the first place? So it's very important, whether it's a, a billing matter, if it's a process matter, that there's someone going in reviewing those. Uh, You know, some people only do it, you know, yearly. Uh, Depending on your organization, I think it's important actually to do it quarterly. You know, you're doing some type of monitoring on the effectiveness of uh, your compliance program and your control. So if it's a billing issue, you have your billing person go in and review claims. If it's a process, a situation, you should have, um, you know, a quality assurance team. Again, the name of the department may vary depending on your organization. Go in and review each department's process and procedures. Um, you know, these controls should be in place because, again, if no one's reviewing or auditing these things, you know, who's going to know that problems exist? And by the time that we realize that there's problems or, you know, gaps, it's too late. The OIG or the DOJ is knocking at your door. So I think they're very important and every organization should have some sort of internal monitoring and auditing team in place to perform said actions, whether it's financial process and procedure and so on. Right. If you don't know that there's a problem, then right. you're suddenly you're suddenly five billion dollars. Exactly. <laughs> so yes, totally. And then uh, I guess the the next one. This one is interesting to me, and I I would really love to hear your take on it. But it is enforcing standards through well publicized disciplinary guidelines. Yes, yes, yes. And people view on this also varies. I've had conversations with some people who really didn't feel that it should be appropriate to have well-publicized disciplinary guidelines, but I do. And I believe that enforcing standards through well-publicized disciplinary guidelines is going to be very, very important because to me, they serve as a deterrent. You know, when people know there are consequences or repercussions for their actions or lack thereof action, they are likely not to commit a violation of company policy. Now, being realistic, would it deter every employee, no matter, you know, the organization or company? 
there's going to be a small percentage of individuals who may feel they can beat the system. However, majority of them will not try to beat the system as they know that there are consequences and repercussions for those actions. So basically, when you publicize, you know, disciplinary guidelines, it basically sets the tone. So no one's going to want to go in and, you know, violate anything, any company policy or rule, because they already know that if they do so, this is what it can lead to. And that's the way that you're going to enforce those standards because who wants to get in trouble? Who wants to lose their job? Who wants to potentially uh, become incarcerated or whatever the case may be? Um, it, it sets the tone. And I'm a firm believer in making sure that, you know, you know the time, you know, the time you're just like, if you commit a crime, you do the time. So, you know, if you commit whatever crime, there's a set time that you may have to serve for it. I'm all for if you commit a certain company violation that you know up front that, hey, this violation could lead to this, then you're not going to do it. It's going to deter you from doing it. I really like the kind of through line. And I think the implicit message that you're, that you're making is everybody follows the rules. It's, yep. it's it, the discipline isn't different for, you know, the person at the, at the front desk of the hospital than it is for the CEO. If you do the, the wrong thing, everybody gets, everybody's on a level playing field. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And basically setting that tone too starts at the top. So um, a lot of times too, and I know this is a little bit off from this particular question and just to go back, you know, where we were talking about, uh, you know, having the compliance committee and compliance officer and, you know, they're also responsible for setting the tone. Uh, you know, oftentimes you can have a, a compliance officer, but if they're not a, a compliance officer that feels comfortable with letting upper leadership know that, hey, you're not exempt. If you are in a situation to where you violate these policies, you will face potentially worse um, consequences than what uh, another employee would face. So I just think everything, when you create a culture of compliance, you know, and having, you know, enforcing standards to publicize disciplinary guidelines, uh, it, it's going to stop people from wanting to do it. But again, no matter how great or awesome you feel that your compliance program is, there's going to always be a very small percentage, always, that will feel that they're going to beat the system um, so that, that, that it is just what it is on that. But I just feel like a lot of this, uh, can all be, you know, reduced or prevented is if the tone is set from the very top, from leadership down, um, that you wouldn't even really have to worry about too many people trying to, you know, violate guidelines. Right. I totally agree. The, the top down. Yes. And then We've got our last one. We've got responding promptly to detected offenses and undertaking corrective action. Why is time of the essence when we're talking about this stuff? It is very important uh, when it comes to time. And I just think a lot of times too, people look at corrective actions as something that's negative. Yes, it is negative, uh, but also I wanna add, you know, yes, it's important, uh, to respond to detected offenses, whether it's detect a detected offense that was detected from your internal auditing or detected through the you know OIG, you know taking swift action on whatever the offense is will prevent the offense from happening again. It'll remedy the issue, 
you know, no organization wants a corrective action from the OIG or a corrective action plan from their compliance team. However, a compliant corrective action or performance impro uh, improvement plan is like a second chance. It affords the organization an opportunity to remedy or correct whatever issues before it leads to more serious issues that lead to more serious consequences. So I just feel as though, yes, time is very important because if you are sitting on your hands and you're not responding to a, a detected offense, now it's going to cause that offense to go on or more people are going to try to commit that offense or other offenses are going to be committed from that original offense, which is going to lead to even more serious, you know, consequences. It started off, you would have been just on a corrective action had you responded timely and had a plan in place, but now you waited. So now here you are being fined and now potentially, you know, facing time, depending on how severe of the issue was. So I just think it's just very important that when you receive a corrective action, whether it's something that was issued through your compliance team or from the OIG, I think both should be taken very, very serious, especially the one from the OIG, because it's, like I said, a second chance, because it's affording the organization an opportunity to remedy the issue before it leads to more serious issues and more serious consequences. I didn't even, I didn't even think about framing it from that perspective of you know, you get a second chance. Like this yeah. is this is your chance to fix it, to to literally correct it. And so, um, yeah. I guess I didn't look at it that way. That's it's a really good way of looking at it. And I would almost say it it would be much better getting a um, what's the word? getting a corrective action plan from your employer versus mm -hmm. getting a corrective action plan from the federal government. Um, because then, because then you're just, you know, it, it, there's always something that you can do better. And this is going to be a way to really take those, those really heinous things and making sure that they're taken care of before it has to get higher. That's um, right. Yep. And that's right. Cause sometimes you can issue a corrective action, you know, a compliance team can say, Hey, we're going to put you on a corrective action plan or a performance improvement plan. Some people call them performance improvement plans or whatever the case may be. And some organization departments may become very upset with it. And I have to tell them, well, Hey, you would rather me, you know, especially my time when I was in the quality assurance team, uh, I had to put it in a perspective, like, Hey, look at it this way. We're, putting you on this plan, not the OIG. It's important that you understand that we're putting you on this to prevent it from escalating to where eventually you do end up on an OIG corrective action. So we're pretty much trying to get you up to par before you drift off and end up on a corrective action. So ultimately it's something to, to help you even when the corrective action, of course, no one wants a corrective action from the OIG, but it's pretty much them giving you an opportunity instead of giving you the more severe, uh, you know, penalty or consequence, there's it's like baby steps. They're starting off very small with you. Hey, we're going to give you an opportunity to correct these things. This is what we're going to have you do. You're going to have to prove that you have these controls in place, whether it's doing a quarterly audit, uh, whatever the case may be. But you have to provide that proof that you're doing it. If failure to do so, and it's important that you follow that plan because if not, Again, it's going to lead to those more serious issues. But yes, getting a corrective action may be perceived as being negative, but it also can be perceived as being a positive, especially when it's internally issued, because it's going to prevent you from having issues going forward. You took the words right out of my mouth. 
Um, <laughs> so, uh, so now we've got we've got these seven we've got these seven elements. We've got these pulled out all of the the nuances of it. So I guess my kind of closing question on all of this is given given all of these elements, what is the benefit of having an effective compliance program? I'm going to have to, to think about that. And the reason why I'm going to have to think about that is because the, the benefit of it, it, it speaks for itself. Just say for instance, you know, anyone can have a uh, compliance program. You may have a compliance uh, program on paper. It doesn't mean that it's an effective one. I call them a phantom compliance program. It's like, hey, you have a compliance program on paper. Doesn't mean that those elements have been implemented. Doesn't mean that, yes, maybe they have been implemented, but they're not measurable or they are measurable and they don't fare well. You know, having a an effective compliance program not only benefits the organization, it benefits the organization because you have staff that feels, you know, confident and comfortable uh, and prideful to work for an organization that they know that, you know, is in compliance and they know that they can go to someone and speak to them about whatever issue it is that's going on. You know, they feel comfortable in doing so because they know they can do so without fear of retaliation. Um from a customer or client standpoint, and, and I, I want to say this really quickly, oftentimes we look at things from, yes, compliance is complying with law, but we also sometimes miss the mark when it comes to the, the legal, I mean, the, the morality and ethical part. You know, oftentimes people don't look at it from that way. You may be legally compliant, but just because something is legal doesn't mean that it's morally or ethically right, if that makes sense. And I think oftentimes when you don't have a compliance program in place or you've been caught up in some type of compliance scheme or scandal, it's going to tear customers and clients from you because they're not going to want to do business with you because they feel like you're, you're ethically unsound. Just say, for instance, you can be a food manufacturer. I know this is not you know, talking about healthcare, but it could be a food manufacturing uh, processing company to where you're, you know, making food and you're using a lot of preservatives and you're, you know, having unsafe practices with the animals and things like that. You're doing all of this and it's bad, but you're right under the threshold of where legally you are allowed to do so. However, you know, you may have a customer look at it. Okay, yes, their, you know, their food and preservatives are wrong. They treat their animals wrong. You know, legally, they're not in trouble. But from an ethical and moral standpoint, do I want to do business with them? So that's where the compliance program come into place. Not looking at it just from the legal or regulatory component. We also have to look at it from the the, the, the morality or the ethical standpoint. Because just because something is legal doesn't mean it's right. And all the time, I think that get lost in compliance programs because a person may feel like, well, I didn't do anything legally wrong, but ethically you did. So I just think, you know, the benefits of having an effective compliance program is that you're going to garner business because customers and clients will want to do business for you and employees would want to work for you. I really like that through line um, because if we're, if we're thinking about, you know, those maybe like morally dubious or like ethically dubious things that's going to lead to a compliance issue later on you know yep. if you're if you have already this morally flexible way of operating mm -hmm. what's to say that you're not going to then absolutely perform fraud later on you yep, know right. so yep. 
I like that. Yep. You're right. Vanessa, thank you so much for this. I, I really have a good time talking with you. And this was this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your time. And thank you again for having me. And that's it from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our associate editors are Neka Ugu, Marcus McNeil, Andy Vandenbush, and Casey Callahan. Special thanks to Associate Director of Student Affairs, Professor Radhika Sutherland, and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.